Hello and welcome to Give Yourself the Chat. I'm your host, Peter Lewis, and this is the show dedicated to discussing ideas and philosophies to help you live a life of high performance. So hello, everyone. Welcome back to Give Yourself the Chat. I have another episode today and I have Dr. John Sellers with me today. And today we're going to be talking about philosophy and in particular, our shared passions for for stoicism. So first of all, John, thank you for being on on this show. A very good morning to you. Welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're very welcome, sir. Now, we've never met in person, but increasingly that's happening a lot with pandemic. I'm meeting a lot of people. I mean, it gets to a point where you're, you're making friends virtually. It'd be really quite weird to meet up in person. But I virtually met you through an event called Stoicon, which has recently been run on the back of an introduction by Donald Robertson, who was a previous guest on this, this podcast. And Stoicon, I think, I don't know how many years in the making it's been, but I think it's run for four or five iterations, but this would have been the first time online. So how did all that work out for you, taking what was a growing event offline on, onto the online space? Yeah, I mean, the, the headline is that it was a great success. I mean, but I'll, I'll, let me give you some of the backstory. So... <sighs> It's really something that exists alongside something else that uh, a group of us have been doing called Stoic Week. And we first came together in 2012 to sort of brainstorm and think about what we could do with Stoicism to bring it to a wider audience. We came up with that idea of Stoic Week. We did a kind of a first run in, in 2012. And then we did our first really big push for the general public in 2013. And in that year, we also organized a public event. Now, the kind of strange irony in all of this is because Stoic Week is something that runs purely online mm. and at a distance, we thought, okay, wouldn't it be nice to have a real physical event where we bring people together in one place and they can actually talk and share their experiences? Yeah. And so we've had this physical event each year since 2013, precisely to have some real yeah. physical interaction with people. <laughs> And then, of course, this year, that just wasn't possible. So we decided to take it online. None of us had organized a big online event like that. Yeah. We were fortunate enough to make contact with someone in New York who's very experienced with running these online events. I mean, he does it professionally and was interested in stoicism. So he helped us out too. And it was fantastic. I mean, I think throughout the day, I mean, people came and went, but we had at least 900 people tuned in. Wow. Yes at any single point throughout the day. And I think about 1,500 people had registered. And some of those people said explicitly, I can't sit in during the day, but I want to register so I can access the recordings after yes. the event. Yeah. So that was fantastic. And the previous physical events we've done, we're usually limited to about 300 people, simply in terms of the size of the venue that we could get hold of. So to be able to reach that much bigger audience, people in other parts of the world that could never possibly travel to a physical event. And also, I mean, there are accessibility issues, right? So mm. people with small children, people with yeah, disabilities sure. who couldn't come to those events could suddenly tune in as, as well. So we've really opened our eyes and we're now kind of converted Yes. To this idea of doing online events because we can just reach a much bigger audience. You can, yeah. Who needs to meet face-to-face these days? I mean, it's going to be nice when we can do that eventually, but it's wonderful that it worked, you know, the wonders of technology, but to reach a wider audience. So, I mean, you've been involved in services for a long time. Just to sort of give the readers a sense of, of your background, you're currently a reader in philosophy at Royal Holloway University of London, visiting research fellow at King's College London, author of, of many books on, on the subject of stoicism, and, and most recently one on Marcus Aurelius. So, uh, you know, I, I am aware I'm speaking to an academic and a practitioner, and I come at Stoicism purely from a, a practical perspective. And, and most recently, like a lot of people, 
people were discovering stoicism, it feels like it is re-emerging if it ever went away. But I think for people like myself, stoicism is offering a sort of framework, a language, a codification, if you like, of understanding what perhaps I've already already come across. So, uh, you know, the listeners will know I have a military past and so much of the sort of values and practices of a military professional have echoes in stoicism. And stoicism has now allowed me to put a language and codification around it. So I guess let's jump off. Why do you think stoicism is, is, is it having its time or have we just woken up to something that's always been there for us? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It's something that we've reflected on quite a lot of we, as we've been organizing these various events. So, I mean, I think it is certainly having its time. There were a handful of people in, say, the 1990s that were interested in this stuff, but it was all very niche. There wasn't really a large market for it. In, I think it was 2009, William Irving published a book, A Guide to the Good Life, which was the first sort of popular book aimed at a wide audience that did quite well. And I think a lot of people first heard about Stoicism through that. And then when we we first started doing our Stoic Week thing, we thought we'd do it for one year. It would just be a one-off experiment. It went reasonably well. And then we said, well, we've got the materials. Why don't we run it again next year? But we certainly didn't think we'd still be doing it eight or nine years later. So there's a sense in which we're often thinking, well, surely it's had its run now. Surely yeah. it's, it's had its moment and it'll soon be off the radar. And then every so often a journalist will get in touch with me and say, I've just heard about this thing called stoicism. I think it could be the next big thing. <laughs> so, so we're all sitting there thinking, well, it's probably run its course by now. And other people are coming to it for the first time. So I think that that's quite interesting. It's really difficult to know. I mean, one of my more sort of ambitious collaborators will say, well, look at Buddhism, look at secular Buddhism as a kind of a practical guide to life and the way in which people draw on that these days. You go into a bookshop, there are shelves and shelves and shelves of books on Buddhism. There's no reason why Stoicism couldn't be as popular as that. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, that's a kind of an extreme ambitious vision of the future. Well, um, why, why not? Because there's so many people that I've, I mean, I, I've played my part in just introducing people to it, saying, hey, this is working for me. Why don't you try it? And often people do come back and say, well, that, that kind of felt and read like Buddhism and what I understand of Buddhism. And is this just a Western version of it. And so how, how would you answer that question? Is Stoicism the Western version equivalent of, of Buddhism, would you say? I mean, that, that's probably a simple question, but a very deep and we could go anywhere with that. But how would you kind of answer that question? I mean, you're absolutely right. It's a horribly complicated question, <laughs> but there are certainly some resonances between the two, I think. So the idea that everything in the physical world is ultimately impermanent and that we have to kind of deal with that and not get too attached to particulars would be one of obvious kind of connection. Mm. There's a very nice passage in Epictetus, one of the Roman Stoics, where he basically describes what people know from Buddhist discussions as the treadmill of desire, right? Mm. You, you desire one thing, but as soon as you get it, you're dissatisfied with that, and then you're on to desiring the next thing. And if you're constantly pursuing external things, there's no end to your desire, right? There's never a point where you're finally satisfied, right? Yeah. You never get the house that's big enough yes. or the car that's expensive enough. And so you just need to kind of cut your desires for those sorts of things altogether. And so that's a kind of a, what people think of as a, a Buddhist idea that's right there in the Roman Stoics. As for whether they are the Western Buddhists, I mean, this is where it gets complicated because you've got another school of 
ancient philosophers that arise at the same time, the Epicureans. Mm. People have often noted parallels between Epicureanism and Buddhism. And you've got another group of ancient skeptics around the same time called the Peronians. And there have been a number of monographs written on why the Peronians are the Western Buddhists. So I think what's really interesting is you've got these three different schools of philosophy that develop in Greece, all giving practical advice about how to live, all of which resonate with some different aspects of Buddhism that's developing as a guide to how to live at exactly the same time in India. There's a kind of a zeitgeist going on there. Yeah, that, that's interesting, isn't it? So as you were sort of relating that, I'm probably going to misattribute this sort of quote, but it's that sort of line, if you have to call yourself a Buddhist, or if you say you're Zen, you're completely missing the point, i.e. you're attached to a label which is completely opposite. Is it the same if you, if you call yourself a Stoic? Are you kind of missing the, the point a little bit of what Stoicism is? Does, does it read across like that, would you say? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I, I mean, I'm inclined to say yes. And I often meet people who, I mean, particularly when we first started out, there'd be people that would want to sort of, if you like, come out of the closet and say, I'm a Stoic, as if the label was really important to them. Again, there's a passage in Epictetus in his handbook. He says, you know, if you're a budding philosopher, Never say that you're a philosopher, right? Never say that you're a philosopher. Never claim that you've got any great insight into how best to live. Stay quiet for most of the time <laughs> and get on with the hard work of training yourself in the virtues. Yes. I guess that's a nod to there, there is so much that is to be explored and to understand and you never quite, you never reach the end and it's the, the pursuit of understanding rather than just wasting time in, in attributing some kind of label or badge of honour piece. It's, a, it's, it's quite a sort of a position of humility I, I find in that, you know, waste no more time arguing what a good man should be, just be one. Yeah, absolutely. I probably crudely quoted Marcus Aurelius there in some way. No, I think that was very good. I think you got, you got that just right. And of course, again, I mean, as you may have come across, the Stoics often talk about the ideal figure, the sage, the wise person, right? This is the kind of the, the goal towards which we should all be working. But that's an incredibly high ideal that not many people will ever reach. Mm. And so again, in using the label, I'm a Stoic, there's a sense in which someone who says that is saying something along the lines of, I'm a true Stoic, I'm a real Stoic, I've mastered all of this, I'm now a sage. Yes. And again, that kind of goes against the humility, which I think you're absolutely right, is, comes across very strongly in the Stoic writings. Yeah, I do a lot of work in the video games industry and I help studios grow and, and teach leadership in there. And one of the first studio leads I ever met was, he said, never ever tell people that you're a hardcore gamer or anything else like this because they'll just know you're not if you you know you just just play games and just enjoy playing games understand games you don't have to go around telling people that and i think that kind of resonates with with what you've just said there i'd like to pick up on this you know this idea of labels and whatever or language in particular so when people come across stoicism or they may compare it to their understanding of adjective Stoic and the perception of people who have a sort of stoic demeanor are, you know, they're sort of the bit glum or a bit serious, no fun and everything else like this. And so there is a distinction, isn't there, between stoic small s and stoicism large s. So again, let, let's see if we can just, sort of, for those who, who aren't familiar, and again, I know we're opening up here, but the distinction between the two terms and, and how the labeling is has either sort of hindered understanding or, or could actually help. Yes. So, I mean, I guess when people think of lowercase stoicism, they have in mind someone who's unemotional, the kind of the, the block of stone. 
and perhaps someone who's repressing their emotions in some way, in some kind of unhealthy way, right? The stiff upper lip, right? They're, who knows what's going on inside, but they've got this stony exterior. And that's certainly a long way from the philosophy of Stoicism. So there's a great passing remark by an eminent academic who I know very well in one of his books. And he says, it's not about gritting your teeth. It's about seeing things differently so that you don't have to. Mm. And I think that captures one of the key ideas in Stoicism. So there's no idea that you repress your emotions or that you try to deny that they're there. Mm. What you do is you look at the world in a different way. You value different things. You make different judgments about things. And that changes the emotions that you actually experience. So rather than judging that a certain situation is outrageous and unacceptable and then getting very angry, what you do is you train yourself not to make that judgment in the first place, and then you won't experience that emotion. So there's nothing to control or repress because your whole emotional landscape has been transformed. Yeah, so that, that is helpful. And I think that that, that emotional landscape is, is one that I think if, if you accept, you know, the acceptance of, of life is difficult, the acceptance of that you fall down, you have frustrations and everything else like this. But I'm now thinking in my mind, it's just that acceptance and then thinking, okay, well, what, what do I do about it is, is how stoicism for me is a useful philosophy because so much of what resonated with me was this idea of just controlling what you can and not placing so much weight of importance on those things which are outside of, of your control. And going, linking back to how previously I, I see echoes in, in my, my experiences, you know, I've, I've done a lot of reading and one of the sort of texts that had the most influence on me in a sort of self-help genre was the seven habits of highly effective people. And, and habit number one by Stephen Covey is be proactive and this idea of operate within your circle of control rather than your circle of, of concern. And that for me really resonated. But now when I look back on it, I think, well, that's, that's a, a key tenant of, of stoicism there. So I'm thinking, well, Stephen Covey, have you just taken stoicism and repackaged it, which, which has made it accessible? But that, that idea for me, stoicism has had the most impact with just that focusing on my loci of control, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I think this brings us also back to the theme of humility, right? So... I mean, part of it, I think, part of the stoic attitude is accepting that the world doesn't revolve around you. All sorts of things are going to happen that are out of your control, and you can do nothing about them. And if you think that the world is in some way going to conform to your will, and then you're going to get upset and have a tantrum like a toddler, because it doesn't <laughs> all go the way that you want it to. I mean, this is, this is just a sign of, of I mean, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be blunt now. I mean, that's, mm. a, it's just, it's a, that's just a sign of sort of intellectual immaturity, yeah. right? The world doesn't revolve around us. All sorts of things are going to happen every single day that I haven't chosen and that I might prefer hadn't happened. But you just have to accept that that's the way the world is. We're just small, relatively insignificant parts of this much larger system. And we just have to deal with what's presented with us and find the best way to navigate through it without getting upset about the fact that the world doesn't conform to our will. Yes. Yeah. And the frustration of trying to bend the world to our will is, you know, it's a, it's a lifetime of, on the minor sense of, of headaches. But I think that that leads us nicely then how the, the Stoics would say, well, the term living according to nature 
is that linked to what you've just said then? If, if you could just unpack that a little bit for us, what, what, what does that actually mean, this sort of living in accordance with nature? Yes, I mean, I think, so this is what the Stoics say is the goal or the aim of, of, of human life. This is what we should all be trying to do. If we want to live well, if we want to live a good, happy life, we should try to live in accord with nature. And I think it's a really rich phrase. I think there are a number of different levels to it. So one of those would be live in accord or with what happens. So along the lines we were just discussing, right? So accept what happens and work with events rather than trying to fight against them. There's also a sense of living in harmony with our own human nature. And that can involve thinking about human nature in general. So we're rational social animals. Part of being a good human being is being social and sociable and getting on with people. And so having those kind of good social virtues. And there's also an element of, because the Stoics think that we're ultimately rational creatures, being rationally consistent within ourselves. So having a rationally consistent set of beliefs having a set of beliefs or values and holding on to them over the long term rather than chopping and changing you know, our minds every, you know, every few days about what we think is important or whatever. And that requires some kind of considered reflection. And there's also an element we get in some of the sources, not just about living in harmony with human nature as a whole, but also our own individual natures, right? We've all got our own different characteristics and traits. Some of us are introverts, some of us are extroverts, some of us are artistic, some of us are sporty. And there's a sense in which taking into account that individual nature that we have, gaining that self-knowledge about who we are as individuals and accepting that and working with it rather than fighting against it seems to be another element. So nature's operating at a number of different levels, I think. Mm. Our own individual unique natures, human nature, and then nature with a capital N, the external world that we also have to kind of work with rather than than struggle against. Yeah. So and and so then, you know, we talk about you know the, the route to a to happy, fulfilling life, and you know we're all individuals, but it's living in that coordinate. So how do the the sort of stoic virtues allow someone to do that? And you know, things like wisdom, courage, justice, temperance, or moderation. Am I right in saying they are the four sort of stoic virtues? And and so why did the stoics decide upon? that sort of that those four things as being i guess is that the sort of mechanisms for leading a happy fulfilling life in that respect yeah i mean in part they're inheriting that list of virtues from earlier discussions in greek philosophy so these are kind of i mean in a sense they're kind of standard sort of virtues of greek culture but they seem sensible ones right you know to be just i mean justice sounds a bit highfalutin right but if we re-describe that as fairness right okay I think that's a good kind of modern English way to think about that. Yeah. Right? We, to, be, to be fair to other people. Moderation seems like a good one as, as well. Courage, again, I mean, well, if you have a military background, you might have a very different sense of what courage looks like to the average person in the street. But there are also often situations where people have to sort of step up and do the right thing and be prepared to do that. Well, and it's I something think- we admire. Well, on that point about courage, actually, you know, the from the outside looking in, you might think that the the, the military person takes courage as this sort of physical heroic type of courage. But actually, that the the word that comes to mind when I think of courage is integrity and moral courage. And to your point about doing the right thing, but in particular, doing the right thing even when no one's watching. 
You know, you're getting on to our point earlier on this conversation, getting on and just being rather than, hey, look at me, I, I've done this, you know, and, and I guess the modern day equivalent on social media is the humble brag, you know, look at me, what, I, what I've done. But actually, there's no, nobody cares. Just get on and be that, that good person. So for me, courage has always been about the sort of the moral courage and the compass that you, you kind of set your, your life by, which yeah, might come as a surprise to some people from a military man, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's certainly what they've got in mind. And as well as using those sort of traditional labels for those sorts of character traits, I mean, they also think that these come as a package, right? So we could drop those labels to a point and just talk about wisdom or just talk about being virtuous or having a good character in general. Mm. And then if you ask, okay, what does that involve? You can unpack it and say, well, you need to be moderate and fair and, and, and have integrity. I mean, those are good. I think those are good ways we could re- rephrase it. So it's about having an excellent character. It's about being in good psychological health. I mean, that's part of it too, in a sense. I mean, there's a very, I mean, without wanting to drift into sort of too technical philosophy, there's a sense in which there's a very sort of there's a very normative idea of what a good human being is. I mean, this isn't a kind of sort of free-floating existentialist. There are a world of possibilities for you, and you can live your life however you want. Right. I mean, instead, no, no, no. There's a there's a truth of the matter about what a good human being looks like. They're rational. They're sociable. They get on with other people. They're fair. They're decent. They have integrity. A good human being is someone that lives up to those standards. And so, so what was the sort of stoic relationship then with a sort of an existential power, a god, or a, a some sort of deity? Because it strikes me, I'm an atheist, <laughs> a humanist, and I'm happy for anyone to be whatever they want to be, of course. But I get the sense that uh, that stoicism it feels more secular to to me, and yet you, we we could attribute a relationship with a higher power. Where, where, where does sort of stoicism, or how did it sort of navigate that? path and again opening up quite a discussion here i guess but yeah so i think this is really one of the really complicated questions in trying to get your head around stoicism so i'm going to i'm going to tell you two very different stories and then we'll try and knit them together in, in okay. something coherent so first up the stoics are materialists the only things that exist are bodies there's nothing supernatural and the natural world is governed by deterministic cause and effect which is what science models and we could give an account of how the Stoics think the natural world works in purely secular scientific terms, right? So you can produce a very secular account of, of Stoicism if you want to. The other side of the story is that the Stoics think that nature as a whole is alive and it has a divine reason that permeates it, which is the soul of the world, which they identify with God. So they're pantheists. And although nature is governed by simple deterministic cause and effect, they identify that with this divine providence. And they think that our souls are fragments of this divine soul, and this divine soul governs all of nature. Right. So I can describe it for you in very secular materialist terms. I could also describe it for you in very religious pantheistic terms. And both of those are true for the Stoics. So how do you kind of reconcile all of that? I mean, different people will stress different aspects. A lot of modern Stoics will want to go down the secular route. Interestingly, Marcus Aurelius, in his meditations, is slightly agnostic about all of this. Mm. And he says, well, whether the universe is governed by divine providence or is just a bunch of atoms floating around in a void, that doesn't actually change what it is that I have to do here and now. 
Yes. And so I think that's, that's the nice sort of midpoint is that regardless of that, that all lies outside of, of my power. There's nothing I can do to change those course of events apart from what I decide to do next, which is interesting. So, so uh, bless him. Good old Marcus. Yeah, it kind of really cuts the quicker of the matter. So let's, let's talk about that. Cause I, I, it's interesting. I, I am currently reading meditations and then I'm going to go on to Seneca's work and Epictetus and everything else. It's interesting. I, I, I came at the works that have kind of made stoicism quite accessible for me, although I'm finding meditations really accessible, the version I'm reading, was a book by Darren Brown, Happy. And I thought that was the most unlikely introduction to stoicism, watching this, you know, sort of Darren Brown, for those people who aren't, aren't familiar, although I'm, I'm sure most will be, you know, a, a UK sort of magician, mentalist, illusionist and, and everything else. But he's come at it and that was a really nice sort of segue into it. And then, of course, we've got the works of, of people like Donald, but also Ryan Holiday and everyone else. And now I'm reading the, the sort of core text. And I'm really surprised actually how accessible they are. And actually, I, you could start off with meditations and not be put off. So why has that, why has his writing, which was to self, become so accessible. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, is it not? That one, it's, it's lasted. And secondly, it's so accessible for what was a, a personal journal written nearly 2000 years ago. Yeah, I mean, so it's not, it's not technical philosophy, as you say. I mean, it's just his private notebook. I mean, this is a man in his 50s reflecting about his own life, you know, possibly on a daily basis. I mean, we don't know the precise details of how it was written. And trying to give himself practical advice, practical consolation, and I mean, Marcus isn't the wise old sage with the big beard who's got all the answers. He's a late middle-aged man dealing with the pressures of a really difficult job, trying to find solutions to problems that, that he's, he's grappling with, mm. you know, how to remain calm and, and behave well when he's dealing with lots of difficult, troublesome people at court, dealing with all sorts of events that are out of his control, dealing with demands that are put upon him because of the role that he's been given, which some days he might not want, but nevertheless, he's got it. And so he needs to get on with it and mm. do it the best he can. I mean, I think these are really, these are really accessible. This is the timeless problems that he's grappling with. As you say, it's very, very, re very, very readable. For you then as, as a, an academic and, and having a really sort of deep understanding and, and quest for, for greater understanding, do, do you ever worry that stoicism might get, let's be brutal, dumbed down? because we're making it accessible? Do you ever fear? Because I know some people can get really quite sort of protective of, well, no, this is now getting done. Is there a danger that stoicism gets diluted as more people access it through, I'm not saying simplified publications, but to make something as accessible to, to a wider population, it has to be understandable. Do, do you see a danger of stoicism losing its way a little bit in that regard? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, there are a number of issues there. People often refer to what they call Silicon Valley Stoicism, mm. where people are taking certain bits of advice as kind of life hacks. You know, I'll take these few techniques and I can use them to make me more resilient. I won't worry about all the ethics stuff and I'll just go back and try and make as much money as possible. So people often raise concerns about that. And inevitably, if someone who's just, you know, got a regular job, getting on with their regular life, they pick up a book and it's got a few interesting ideas in it. Of course, they're not going to go into all of the background and understand all the details of the theory. I mean, as long as we are clear that that's all those people are doing and there's a separate academic discourse about what's really going on and we don't get those two things confused, I think that's fine. 
Massimo Piliucci has just published a, a short book on Stoicism, his, his, his third, I think, in which he says he wants to update Stoicism for the 21st century. So his background is as a philosopher of science, a biologist. Mm. So he's very much in favor of the secular reading. And one of the things he does in that book, which I think is very admirable, is he says, I'm going to update Epictetus in the following ways. And I'm going to explain in some detail how it is I'm changing this and transforming it and turning it into what I think could be a useful guide for people in the 21st century. I'm not going to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. You can see precisely what I'm doing to distort it in ways that I think make it more useful. And this is what it's really saying. And I think that that kind of openness and clarity is a really positive way to do it so that we don't end up getting confused about what Stoicism was in antiquity. Yeah. So, yeah, I have to admire that, that approach and just, you know, very upfront. So, so how about for you, John, what, what was your journey to Stoicism? And, and I guess to, to, to sort of jump on that example, what next for you in, in this field? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was probably Marcus Aurelius was one of the first things I read that introduced me to Stoicism almost 30 years ago now, when I was a, a philosophy student in the, the very early 90s. But there were a number of other things that I was reading at the time and, and studying at the time that made connections with Stoicism. So as well as having read Marcus Aurelius and thought, this is a really interesting book, I was also coming across various other things that were leading me there. And after a while, I came to realize that almost all the things that I was finding really interesting and that I wanted to learn more about all had some tangential connection to Stoicism in some way. And that was obviously the kind of common denominator of my intellectual interests at the time. So that's why I ended up pursuing it. To pick up on something that you said much earlier, I think like you, I'm probably a fairly sort of temperamental Stoic in the sense that I read some of this stuff and I thought, yeah, that kind of chimes with me. Mm -hmm. These sorts of things make sense. I can, I can see why people would hold those views. One of the things that I found quite interesting over the years when we've been doing this sort of public engagement, bringing Stoicism to a wider audience, is we meet two very different types of people, Right. So there's the people like you and me who are called the temperamental Stoics who kind of can immediately see why this, why this fits with their existing worldview. Hmm. But it enables them to bring a consistency to various attitudes they had already and to put a name to it and gives them something that they can then explore a bit further. And then there are the people who are fundamentally not Stoics in their nature the people who are very quick to get emotional, the people that don't have much patience, the people who, when they encounter Stoicism as a way of thinking about the world, it's life transforming for them because yeah. it's not how they think at all. Yeah. And, and those people, it can have a really big impact on those kinds of people as, as well and really benefit them in some ways. So I think, yeah, I think I was a kind of a temperamental Stoic. But in the work that we've done, it's, it's, it's interesting to meet the people who aren't the temperamental Stoics, for whom it's a real wake-up call. Well, yeah, fantastic. I mean, it, it, and if it brings them a sense of renewal or a different way of looking at the world, then, then, then fantastic. So, so what, what kind of lies in wait for the work ahead for yourself? I mean, there, there's plenty of books in your back catalogue. I, I presume you know, writing is very much at the heart of what you do. But what would you like to do? You've described the last 30 years. What, what about the next 30 years for, for you, you temperamental stoic you? <laughs> Oh, I have absolutely no idea. Oh, I've good. <laughs> never been a person for long-term plans. It's very much one task at a time. I'm doing something very academic at the moment, which is a, a study 
on the reception of Stoic ideas in the early Italian Renaissance. So something very niche yes. that isn't going to be much more widely. I'm editing a book on, on Marcus Aurelius, a collection of essays by various academics, but hopefully it should be fairly accessible so people might find that useful. And another Stoic philosopher, kind of the fourth of the Roman Stoics, called Musonius Rufus. I'm also editing a book with a colleague on him. There's not been much written on him. And he has lots of interesting things to say about training and improving oneself and all sorts of everyday mundane issues to do with sort of education and diet and clothing and, you know, how would a Stoic, you know, what should a Stoic attitude be to home furnishings or <laughs> you know, facial hair or, you know, these sorts of things, you know, the real, the real stuff of everyday life, yeah, right? Yeah, it all seems yeah. very mundane. And so Musonius Rufus was teaching philosophy in Rome in the first century AD, and Epictetus attended his lectures. That's where, where, where he first studied philosophy, we think. So I'm also working on a, on a book that will, will outline his, his ideas. Again, but I love that nod to the sort of practical nature of of, of life and, and and how we navigate it. And what I like to do on on this podcast, I mean, it's called "Give Yourself the Chat," which I think, in retrospect, looking back, was a nod to my stoic experience without really knowing it, because the whole nature of of this was the story about when I just really had to literally pull my socks up when I was in a, in a triathlon feeling at my lowest ebb and just wanting to give up. And it was like, hang on, no, within my control is the next step type of thing. So I gave myself the chat and I attribute that to one of my, my dear friends that said, coined that phrase. But for the listener then, what would you advise as if they really want to sort of get into this and understand more? What, what's a good first step, apart from buying all your books, clearly, but to what, what would you say is a good first step into this philosophy and, and, and getting on and, and doing rather than just attributing a label to yourself? Yeah, I mean, so we've talked a bit about Marcus Aurelius. I mean, his meditations, as you say, is, is, is very accessible. So, and it's in nice, very short chunks. So you can dip in and out of it, right? You can, you can dip into a, f a few paragraphs here and there without it being a big time commitment. So that's, that's something that would be good to read. And it's consistently been one of the best-selling philosophy books for, for years and years and years, for, for decades. I mean, it's been a bestseller for like 100 years. So it's always been perennially popular, even if people might not realize that he's a Stoic and there's a big whole philosophical system behind what he's saying. So that's really good. Epictetus is wonderful. All of the Roman Stoics whose, whose works survive have very different characters, personalities. There are very different tones to their writings. So Marcus is this very thoughtful, reflective man in late middle age. Epictetus is kind of like the tough taskmaster. He's the man who'll kind of tell you how it is. Okay. And I really like that tone. I mean, he's the person that will just tell people to pull their socks up. And uh, so he's a great read. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's written often as sort of dialogue discussions in his school between him and students and him and people visiting the school, officials from Rome or, or whatever. So again, it's not a technical, difficult work of philosophy. It's very readable. So I would, I would certainly recommend Epictetus. And then the third, the third big figure, of course, is Seneca. Lots of people really like Seneca's letters, and there's lots of really interesting stuff there. I'm actually a big fan of his essays. Mm. I, I much prefer the essays. So there's an essay on the shortness of life. There's an essay on, on leisure, how to use our time. There's an essay on, on a happy life and on tranquility of the mind. And these are all really fantastic short essays. Seneca's a great stylist. He's the master of coming up with a short, pithy phrase that captures something brilliant. I mean, there's, I, think, I think it's in his essay on Providence. 
he says, disaster is virtue's opportunity. I think that's brilliant. That is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Fantastic. That, that, is, that is wonderful. John, if people want to find out more about your work and the next projects or, or getting involved in, in, in more of this field, what should they do? Yeah, so I've written a short book on this, which is supposed to be accessible. It's called Lessons in Stoicism, or for people in the USA, it's come out as the pocket stoic. And that tries to introduce the kind of core ideas and say a bit about the three Roman Stoics that I've been talking about and introduce them as personalities. So that's one thing. People can go to our website, modernstoicism.com, and there you'll find information about Stoic Week that we run, Stoicon and various other things we've we've done. And there's a blog there with something ridiculous, like 800 articles on it from over the last six, seven, eight years. So there's huge amounts of information there about stoicism. Stoicism and the military, serious illness, ecology, Buddhism, all sorts of different topics. You can just type in keywords. You'll find something there that will kind of connect with your existing interests, I think. You'll find stuff on them. I'm sure you'll find stuff on stoicism and the military tucked away in there as well. So you could look that up if you're curious. No, I'm absolutely well on that, actually. As, as a result of my chat with, with Donald and, and who knows after this, I've been invited to contribute to a military online conference on stoicism over in the US. So it's great. It's fascinating. And I think there's so many different ways to connect with the philosophy. So I, I want to thank you, John, for your time today on this episode. I do appreciate that actually there is so much so much complexity to this philosophy and yet actually there's so much simplicity to it as well and and i want to thank you for giving us a, a glimpse of how just how we can just access it and and certainly deepening my understanding of the philosophy and so it's been a pleasure to have you on i'd love to explore some more ideas and go in depth in other areas later on in this show but for the time being john thank you so much for your time oh, thank you so much for having me So if you've been listening to this podcast show for a while now, you'll know that I have a fascination with ancient philosophy and in particular Stoicism. So it was a real treat to have John on today's episode. And there is so much that we could have explored around the philosophy. But I wanted to not only deepen my understanding, but also share some of that ancient wisdom with you, particularly if you're coming at Stoicism for the first time. I only just discovered it a few years ago, and it really helped helped me put a language and a framework and a codification around that which I'd been living anyway because there's so many parallels with my military past and and it was an absolute delight to speak with John there and, and I thought he handled my questions which sometimes were clumsily put because I'm struggling to use some of the right words but he understood the, the essence of what I was getting at there and just a glimpse into what has clearly been a lifelong pursuit of, of understanding and learning and, and research on his part so I'm indebted to him for spending the time to give his perspective on Stoicism and please do follow up with the work that John does because it is just an absolutely fascinating and yet highly practical philosophy to engage with which has really helped me and I I hope it can help you too. If you'd like to hear more fascinating guests or or you have some guests in mind that you know would be a good fit for the show then please do suggest them. Hop onto any of the social media channels that Give Yourself a Chat is, is on and also pop over to peterlewiscoaching.com get in touch suggest a guest and any subjects you'd like me to explore because this podcast is growing it's getting some traction and it's all down to people like yourself who are engaged with it so thank you so much for being a listener until the next time look after yourself and keep well